What do you think of when you hear that phrase, the communion of saints? What are the images and associations that come to mind for you? Uh, do you perhaps picture a, a table uh, with bread and wine around which sit St. Peter and St. Paul and St. Agnes and St. Teresa haloed and holy? Do you perhaps have an association of a different kind? Do you picture uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation streaming from every direction into a magnificent party as a band, a jazz band is playing, oh, when the saints come marching in. Or when you hear that phrase, do you mainly think of a huddle of football players from New Orleans? Well, in a sense, there's a little bit of truth in all of those associations and even more to come. And I want to think with you today about this idea so that the next time you say, I believe in the communion of saints, you're going to stand up straighter. You're going to smile more broadly because you're going to know what you are really saying, what you are trying to live into yourself and why this really matters, maybe especially today. So I want to start with what may be the most confusing word in this part of the Apostles' Creed, and I'm talking about that word saints itself. If you grew up in the Catholic or Orthodox or Episcopalian traditions, then you know what that word means. It means people not much like me. The word saint is a title that gets put in front of the name of a very unusual person, somebody that has lived a near-perfect life, somebody that may have suffered profoundly, even died a, a particularly gruesome death, or maybe even did miracles on behalf of the faith. Saints are, are people who get schools and hospitals named after them. They're the people that get their images carved in stone on big buildings or in statues. Saints are like the Christian equivalent of the Avengers or the Justice League. They may be communing out there someplace, but it's not a circle I'm likely to be invited into because my cape is too soiled and my halo's nowhere near shiny enough. Can any of you relate a bit to this understanding of that term saints? It did not used to be this way in the life of the church. When the Apostles' Creed first came into being and began to be used all over the worldwide communion of Christianity, that word saint or hagion in the Greek and sanctus in the Latin simply meant holy one, a holy one. That word holy also has a certain tendency to become remote to us, somewhat inaccessible, a little bit stained glass as it were, but what it really means is consecrated or set apart or dedicated. Someone is regarded as holy when they are dedicated to a sacred purpose. In the first few centuries A.D., every follower of Jesus Christ was holy in that sense. There was absolutely no social advantage 
at least publicly speaking, to being a follower of Jesus. You would not go to a gathering of Christians because it offered you great networking possibilities or because your neighbors would be impressed by it or because somebody in your family tradition before said, well, you'd better go to church. There were profound costs, actually, to being a follower of Jesus in ancient times. And so each person was regarded as a saint. Each follower of Jesus was somebody who had purposely left behind paganism or were trying to extricate themselves from it and had consecrated, dedicated themselves to the sacred purpose of drawing closer to the one true God, of becoming more and more like Jesus, his son, and of helping Christ's life-giving kingdom spread and infiltrate and ultimately replace the destructive empires of this world. That was the agenda of the saints. To get closer to God, to become more like Jesus, to make sure the kingdom eventually overtook the empires of this world. Was every Christian in those days perfectly morally pure and ready to have their picture emblazoned in stained glass? Well, it sure doesn't look that way if you read your way through the New Testament. We read through the epistles of the apostles and we find uh, descriptions of many kinds of people, people in all sorts of different stages of transformation. It was difficult not to fall back into the worldly patterns in the first century. It was hard not to escape or hard to escape the pull of all of the Roman uh, idols and that culture. It was easy to slip back into the tribal mentality of the world around them or all of the distorted notions of power and sex and money that characterized Roman paganism, the dominant culture of the time. It was as hard to follow Jesus in the first century to truly be dedicated to that as it is in our time. And if you haven't noticed, it's hard in our time. Wow, what a seductive range of influences always are pulling upon us, always drawing us back into that worldly identity instead of that identity as people who are totally committed consecrated to growing close to God, more like Jesus, and ambassadors of a different kind of kingdom. The important thing to the believers in the first century was not that they did it perfectly. The thing that they took encouragement from, as I hope we will take encouragement from in our time, the new first century, the 21st century, is that we are on the way. In fact, the early Christians, as you probably know, before they were called Christians, were simply called followers of the way. They were on the path, the way of sanctification, which is uh, simply the SAT word for the process of being made more like Jesus and becoming a more devoted citizen of his kingdom. Are you on that way yourself? What are the practices you undertake, the steps that mark the journey of each week of your life that suggest, I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely on that way. 
If you are on that way, you may not have those letters ST in front of your name, but you are what the early church called a saint. And around you today, look around you today, turn to the right and the left and look at the amazing collection of people we have in this room and are gathered maybe even in your home or are connected with you online today. And understand that you are in that communion of the saints that the apostles describe. This is not easy to say, or rather it is not to say it's going to be easy for you or for me to stay on the way. And I think the part of the challenge has to do with the way that we get sucked into even conceiving of the church today. Level one of our challenge is the power of our surrounding culture and our tendency to continue to be drawn back into its ways. But it's difficult also because sometimes in our time, even the church becomes conceived of in ways that distort our identity. My friend Colin Smith, the pastor of the Orchard, suggests that there are actually four particular popular but problematic understandings of the church that can undermine the saint-making process or the saint-being process for you and for me. The first is when we start thinking of the church as a gas station, says Smith. Uh, I don't know if you can uh, understand where he's going when he suggests that. But, but I will tell you, there are times when I myself think, you know, uh, my spiritual gas tank is running a bit low right now. I think I need to go get it filled up. I sure hope the preacher's bringing some high-octane stuff this morning because I've been running a little low this past week and I need something that will keep me motoring along that will fill me up until I'm running low again and I come back. Or sometimes people start unconsciously approaching church as something of a sacred theater. We may not have helped by adding uh, screens in that respect. Uh, But we think of it as a place that offers entertainment and programs that I like. I think I'll go for an hour of escape. I'll think to myself, maybe I'll find a comfortable seat. Boy, I sure hope today they have the air conditioner on. I'll leave my problems at the door. I'll enjoy the music and the message and I'll come out feeling better than when I went in. Thank goodness the theater's online now too. I can even sit at home. As long as I'm interested. Then there are folks for whom church is something of a drugstore, says Smith. It's where I can go to fill the prescriptions that will deal with my pain or my anxiety. I know Jesus never wants me to be too uncomfortable. And he's designed the church to be very therapeutic. And so I'll go connect with it to help me with what's rattling me inside. And then there's the fourth view, says Colin Smith. It's a view of church as sort of like a big box retailer, the good kind. It offers the best products in a clean and safe environment for me and my family. The church offers great service at a low price, all in one stop, with lots of parking. 
Can you find any of your experience, your approach in any of those views? I will tell you I can. I will confess to you even as a pastor that I often find myself trying to to create just that kind of church for you. I'm thinking all week long about how to ensure that we've got great gas at all the pumps when you decide to pull up or to tune in. Uh, My teammates and I are working all week long trying to think about how to make sure that the music and the media are really first rate. When we get letters that that you found something that we have said uncomfortable or irritating, we actually are hooked by it. We get together and talk about it and try and figure out how do we avoid creating that kind of discomfort or offense next time. We think a lot around here about our products, our services, our hospitality, how we can become the very best place possible for kids and families to grow. And you know, that's not all bad. I hope that actually encourages you we think about those things. That's not all bad. It's just not the core of what the church is meant to be, of what the church really is, of what the apostles were thinking when they said, this I believe. So what was it? What were they talking about when they conceived of the life of the church? Well, I want to suggest to you that to the first believers, church was above all the communion where saints got made. That was its first function. To the extent that any of those other associations I've just described serve that purpose, they're probably okay. As long as that one purpose never gets lost. The church was the place where people could become more like Jesus where they could become more devoted citizens of his kingdom above all earthly empires. The church was not a place that you went to once a week. It was a set of relationships you were immersed in and were living your life out of every day. Every day. The word communion, as you may know, it's rendered koinonia in the original Greek. It literally means fellowship. And the ministry that that Aaron Foster, who's been leading us in worship this morning, uh, leads is called koinonia, has been for decades and decades to capture this important idea. In ancient times, the term koinonia was used to describe any really significant partnership, whether it was marriage, business, in social or political life, in international affairs, any context where people came together for mutual benefit and to promote a larger good was thought of as a koinonia, a fellowship. But when the Christian church came into being, that word took on now an even larger sense of meaning, a universe of meaning. And when we Christians use that word communion today, we're describing four specific relationships that profoundly change the way we do life. 
The first and the most important communion that you and I have is with God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's an image that comes to my mind when I uh, say that or think of that. It's from a time when Amy and I were younger parents. Uh, Our three boys were on the scene, but I remember a particular day, actually a number of days, when we would take our youngest child into the swimming pool on a hot summer day like we're in right now. And I recall a particular time when Amy and I and our oldest son, Rush, took our youngest child, Reed, into the pool with us. And we gathered around him in a ring. And we each took turns holding his hands as he was there in the middle, as he bounced up and down in the water in the circle of our faces, looking up into our eyes with absolute delight and joy and total trust, just so happy to be there, so secure in being there, knowing he was good. I give you that image because as Christians, we believe that we live there all the time. That at the moment of our baptism, we were plunged into the center of a pool defined by the loving circle and constant strength of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And from that moment forward, God is holding our hand every moment of every single day. We never need to be afraid of life, of what is to come, what could happen to us because God has us. For eternity. And the more we look into God's face, and the more we attend to the communion that we have with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the more we receive guidance from His wisdom and are shaped by His character and find the power to keep bouncing even when we're down. Are you getting that image? This is what Jesus meant when he said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. It's why practices like worshiping together and reading the Bible daily and praying throughout the day and walking in silence and awe in the wonder of God's creation are so important for you and for me. It's why we cannot let them get crowded out. It's why we can't lose the habit of them coming out of COVID. It's why we need to renew our practice of these things because it's how we remember and how we renew and how we abide in this most important and embracing of all relationships, the one out of which our greatest security grows And the fruit of the Spirit grows and enables us to be like Jesus, to know God, and to be ambassadors of a different kind of kingdom in a world of corrupted empires. So alongside this primary communion, this one we have with the Holy One in heaven, we also have communion with the church 
on earth. It can be hard in our day to remember how unique and how important is the character of the church. There is a lesson from the past, however, we must go back to again and again. First century Roman society, you must understand, was extremely individualistic, groupish, stratified, and divided. People took care of their own little circles. Those circles were echo chambers. People lived on guard against the threats they were always perceiving from other people. Families were so often fragmented. Violence was rampant. Charity was rare. That was the life of the first century. And then into that culture strode the Jesus people with a sense of identity and security that was rooted in their communion with God. The first Christians established a community of a kind never before seen on the earth. Talk about breakthrough innovations. Talk about revolutionary happenings. It was the early church. It was a circle where distinctions of class and race and nationality melted at the foot of the cross. It was a place where slave and free, Jew and Gentile, male and female, wealthy and poor became family to each other. It was amazing. It was simply amazing. And people who saw it were shocked and perplexed and driven to great curiosity about it. And as the book of Acts chapter 2 describes it, and I want to encourage you, if you do nothing else today, please go back and just read Acts 2, 42 through 47 again. Acts 2, 42 through 47 again. And as that text describes, they met regularly together for meals, for study, for prayer, for worship. They shared their resources with each other to help those who had needs in their midst. The early church felt each other's joys And they mourned each other's sorrows as if they were one body in the conviction that Jesus had made them so. Which was so unlike the world. Where if somebody outside of your tribe or outside of your class or outside of your race or outside of your, had something bad going on, you might think, ah, tough for them. But the church was something different. They belong to one another. Across all of these lines in a remarkable way. And so, for example, when the poor Christians up in Macedonia, Greece, heard that St. Paul was taking up a collection for the relatively affluent believers in Jerusalem who were going through a difficult period of persecution, the poor Christians didn't say, oh, those folks They're so privileged, they're so well off, I'm sure they'll get by. No. The poor Christians in Macedonia, Paul says, begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints. We experience this all the time from our mission partners around the globe. They're in poor environments. They're in in incredibly difficult circumstances. Yet if we share that we've had some challenge here at the church, boy, 
In come the letters declaring their commitment to pray for us, letting us know they think about us, they're concerned about us, because we're their family. As Pete shared last week, sometimes the church has forgotten its identity, gotten sucked back into being of the world. We've made terrible mistakes over time. We've been part of some of the breakdowns of our society, the injuries to people. But there is no community like the communion of saints when it's living into its calling. I got a phone call several days ago from a a couple in our church that have moved away. They've gone down to one of the southern states. And it was a scary move for them because they have been so deeply engrafted here. Uh, They've been part of a, a small group that meets every Sunday night with whom they've been doing life in a very deep kind of way for many, many, many years. They've been plugged into all kinds of ministries and activities of this wider fellowship that is Christ Church. And in going, they were mourning the loss of these irreplaceable connections. But on the phone, uh, a week or two ago, the husband said to me with his tone of amazement, we found out that the church of Jesus is here too. It's here too. We went to this church and they've taken us in. They're helping us get settled. They, they're, they're helping us find all that we need. We already feel like family, he said. Like family. I remember feeling the same thing when I moved to Northern Ireland. I did not, I was 22 years old. I didn't know anybody in that part of the world. Here I am in this, in this place of strangers. There's struggle and conflict and war literally going on in the streets of Belfast where I'm living. But I was embraced by the communion of saints in a way that was stunning to me. And I found a family there that was something awesome. I know, and some of you have experienced it, you can go to Thailand today. You can travel to Bangalore, India. You can go to Nairobi, Kenya. You can go to a long list of other places that I could name. And all you have to do is find a church, a gathering of the believers And you will feel enfolded by a family that might even be more loving than your family of origin. And some of you are nodding because you found it to be true. Please take this in. The church is God's plan to break down as much as possible the hardened heart's and the divisive spirit of every age. We're not the first <laughs> nation or people to be going through squabbles and conflicts and, and debates over big important issues. This is human life, friends, right? But in the midst of that, we have a role to play. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, said Jesus. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't get stuck under some echo chamber bushel that keeps the light from going out. Remember who you are. 
I remember that every time I meet with my small group. I meet on Friday mornings with a small group. It is something of my own ongoing experiment in being part of the communion of saints. Because honestly, and I hope, guys, that you won't be offended when you hear me say this, I'm not sure I would have picked this group. You know, if I was just going out to try and select a group of friends based on my temperament and interests, I'm not sure I'd have stuck with this group of guys. And I'm not sure they would have selected me apart from Christ. We're just not a group of people that would normally be found alongside of one another in nature. We do not see eye to eye on all of the events of the day. We did not all vote the same way in the last election. We vary widely in terms of temperament and paychecks. But because of the grace of God, the character of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, we've become family to each other. Those guys will be here at my funeral. I'll be at theirs. We, we're carrying life together and each other through life. And we try to put everything else that we hold and value and are comfortable with one clear step below our consecration to the cause of Christ and our desire to know God and become like Jesus and advance his kingdom in the world of earthly empires. And I pray for this church to be like that everywhere. And I know it is in lots of places. But I want it to be even more so everywhere. I pray that we will be a sign in our divided age that God is doing something supernatural. That when you see the range of ages and faces and cultures and experiences that you did in the Credo video up there, you're smiling because you're going, that's not normal. <laughs> Look what God is bringing together. I pray it will be like that. I pray that you'll work hard personally in these coming months to find or maybe even to form some circle, some place that expresses the communion of saints, people who may be flawed, but who are on the way together to becoming like Jesus. I pray that you'll do everything in your power. And you've got power. You are the church. I'm not the church. It's your character, it's your action that really frames and defines who we are. I pray you'll do everything in your power to never allow our different opinions about politics and the hot topics of this day to destroy the overarching unity that we have as a people who belong above everything else to the only kingdom that will last in the end. And I pray that more of you will choose to come back in person as soon as you are able. If you're not able, we're there for you. We'll keep coming to you this way. But I'm looking into the camera because I'm saying, if you're out there and you're just not coming back because the PJs are comfortable, wear your PJs here. We want to see you. We want to be in face-to-face -face communion with you. And it, it, the laughter you're hearing right now is a sign that you're loved and you're missed.
But let me just say one last thing in closing. One day we're going to see how great the communion of saints truly is. You see, we don't just have communion with God and just have communion with the church on earth. We also have communion with the saints in heaven. Some years ago, I shared the story of being on a rowing team at Yale University that was one of the most concrete experiences that I'd ever had of koinonia. As individuals on this team, we were dramatically different. We were from different countries in many cases. Uh, But as a team, we were consecrated. We were committed to a higher calling. We were utterly unified because of that higher calling. And then through a comedy of errors, as you may recall, when I told the story, we lost what we thought was our most important race. It was a contest against Harvard for which we had trained all year long. The 100th rowing of the oldest intercollegiate competition in America. We had trained for this one event and we'd lost it through this comedy of errors and we went down in disgraceful defeat before 10,000 spectators. This was especially hard because We'd been training in this house that exists only for the purpose for the Yale and Harvard crews to train for this one race every single year. And in the walls of the house, there were photographs, and I could find four generations of my ancestors on the walls. And so as we're, we're there after the race, and we've lost, we've, made, we've blown it, I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, what are the ancestors thinking? You know, I'm just, oh, what a loser I am. But now I think, to the extent that any were followers of Jesus, that they were actually cheering me on. You see, those who have striven boldly and stumbled greatly often understand that life cannot and must not be measured in a single moment. It is all about where you put your focus after you've failed. Maybe you've failed in your marriage, in your parenting, in your identity as a Christian in our conflicted times. Maybe you failed in some other sphere that God sees and I don't need to see today. But it's all about where you put your focus after that failure. One biblical writer put it this way, and I just love these words. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. When my rowing team wept in discouragement that day, we had no idea that this defeat was tempering us, only tempering us for an ultimate victory. And as I've shared with you before, a day was coming when we would cross the finish line at a vastly larger event, the Henley Royal Regatta, before hundreds of thousands of spectators and the applause of a crown. 
Maybe you're in that place of despair. Maybe you feel that discouragement, that defeat. But what I want to say to you is never forget that you are part of the communion of saints. You are secure in the center of the circle of God's care, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have a supernatural earthly family that will be there for you if you invite us into your life. And even your failures can temper you for unseen victories ahead. And waiting for you out there in the future is a great cloud of witnesses, the persevering saints who have gone before you, people that I used to see sitting in these pews who are now awaiting us in this great uh, grandstand of heaven, cheering us on, praying for us, awaiting us, and one day we will cross the finish line and we will join the great family reunion whose center will be God himself and whose joy will have no end.